What was it like working with Michael Jackson? It was the most amazing experience of my life. The most amazing experience in my life. Because, um, okay, the first day I met Michael Jackson, um, I was hired by his brothers. And the brothers really glommed on to me. They made me a member of the family. And one day we were at Marlon Jackson's pool house um, in Encino, California. Pool house is a little one story, or it's a two story building, big enough for one big room on the first floor and one big room on the second floor. Mm -hmm. And the room on the first floor was lined with video arcade games, which are more expensive than any human could possibly afford, even to own one. And there were a dozen of them in the room. And then in the center of the room was a billiard table. And, the, and I had been told Michael was going to come to this meeting. And we were meeting with the marketing people. And I was trying to explain to the brothers, you try to put on the most amazing show anyone has ever seen in his or her life. So your marketing, your merchandising material has to be at that level. Your T-shirts have to be the most amazing T-shirts anyone's ever seen. Your tour jackets have to be the most amazing tour jackets anyone's ever seen. And as I was explaining this, the brothers flanked me on either side at the pool table and put me in the center and let me lecture. Um, and then I heard the screen door open and I had all the brothers with me. So this could only be Michael. And uh, I remember I didn't grow up with other human beings. Other kids would have nothing to do with me and my parents weren't interested in me. Mm -hmm. So I grew up with lab rats and guinea pigs. And all I know of social rituals is the social rituals of lab rats and guinea pigs, which are not many, especially if they exist at all. Um, and um, so somebody had taught me when I was 19 years old, if somebody's coming into a room that other people want you to meet, you go over to that person, you stick out your hand and you say, hi, my name is fill in the blank. And the other person will say, hi, I'm fill in the blank. Um, and uh, but I'd never used this ritual I'd been taught. So I walked over to the screen door with my hand out and said, hi, I'm Howard. Now, I had read literally over a thousand articles, uh, a pile this thick um, of how Michael Jackson was a bubble baby. And couldn't stand human contact. Mm. And if you put your hand out to him, he would shrink away. Um, Michael did not shrink away. He put out his hand. He shook hands with me. It was a lighter handshake than normal. It certainly wasn't a Donald Trump, I'm going to crush your guts um, handshake. Um, and I said, look, I have a press release I need to get your approval on. Um, can we go somewhere where I can read it to you? So Michael said, sure, let's go upstairs. Now, listen, Michael, his voice was softer than most people's voices. His handshake was a little tiny softer than the normal handshake but he was a normal human being for God's sake. Mm -hmm. um, so we walked up the tiny little set of stairs to the room upstairs. The room upstairs was crammed with amplifiers and keyboards literally up to the ceiling. So Michael found an amplifier he could sit on. I found an amplifier across from him that I could sit on and I proceeded to read him this press release. Now, one thing to understand, Daniel, um, I had become, when I was 11 years old, or 12 years old, a girl in my eighth grade class had done something that no girl had ever done to me before. In fact, no, nobody in my class had ever done. She had turned her eyes in my direction. And then she'd done something even more startling. She'd made eye contact. 
And she said, I told my mother, you understand the theory of relativity. Well, at that point, it was widely understood that only seven people in the world could comprehend the theory of relativity. And I didn't dare confess to her that I didn't understand the theory of relativity. Mm. So as soon as school let out, I jumped on my uh, bicycle. I pedaled to the nice little white building um, that was my local library. And the librarians literally knew me better than my mother did. Um, and I said, give me everything you've got on relativity. So they rummaged through the stacks and they found two books, a great big fat book by Einstein and two collaborators and a little skinny book by Einstein all on his own. So I put those in my bicycle clamp and I pedaled home and went up to the bedroom where I secluded myself reading most of the time anyway um, and started on the big book because I had already learned that if you do the most difficult thing, not the easiest thing, you don't. You may think you don't understand a word of what you're reading, but by the time you get to the end, you will have understood something. So I got through up to page 50 in this book, which is all equations. And Daniel, I've never understood an equation in my life, aside from E equals MC squared. Um, and I realized it's eight o'clock. My mom's going to put me to bed in two hours. If I don't understand the theory of relativity by tomorrow morning, when I get to my eighth grade class, I'm going to be humiliated. Um, so I better stop the big book and go to the little book. And then the little book, it felt, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. It felt as if Albert Einstein had personally reached out through the pages of the book, mm. grabbed me by the front of my shirt, put his nose up to mine and said, schmuck, listen up. To be a genius, it is not enough to come up with a theory that only seven men in the world can understand. To be a genius, you have to be able to come up with that theory and then to express it so clearly that anyone with a high school education and a reasonable degree of intelligence can understand it. Mm -hmm. So I got my marching orders at the age of 12 to be a scientific thinker, which is the only thing I could possibly have ever become in life. Everything else I would have failed at. Um, I had to learn to write. So writing became an obsession with me absolutely an obsession. And in college, um, one day, um, I was taking poetry courses from the poet in residence. And one day, the poet in residence said, Bloom, wait until everybody leaves the room, lock the door, sit down in that seat. And he pointed to the bawling out chair. So I waited for everybody to leave. I closed the door. I sat down on the other side of his desk from him. And he said, listen, Last year, I asked you to be on the staff of the literary magazine. You never even showed up. This year, I am telling you, you are the literary magazine. You are the editor. You do not have even a faculty advisor. It's you. So the minute you walk out that door, you're it. Now, get the fuck out that door. And I walked out the door looking terribly perplexed. perplexed. And yes, I edited the literary magazine and turned into a combination experimental graphics and literary magazine. And we made a huge noise on the college campus with our first issue. And then we made a huge noise in the commercial art, in, in the art director community of the major magazines with our second issue, which just doesn't happen with college students. So I'm serious about my writing, very serious. So, and so I this had learned laid the foundation for you to then 
help Michael Jackson when you're sitting in that? Well, it did in the following sense. I had first tried when I founded my own company was unreasonable for me to continue doing my own writing. I had to run the company. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I rapidly learned that I could not do that, that my job was to dig down to find the soul of the artist. And I was going to need to get that soul across to my account executive who handled that artist Mm. or she would not be what she might need it to be. And the only way I was going to do that was to write all the fucking materials myself. Right, right. So I went back to writing all the materials myself. So this press release that I was about to read Michael Jackson, I had written. And with all that background, with Exorcist du Style, in which in French, because I was considered one of the top two French students in the country. And in French, you ape the styles of seven major French authors. You learn how they construct their sentences and their paragraphs. And and it's an amazing experience. So all of that went into this press release. Hmm. But nobody'd ever, 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 ever seen it. And so I read the first paragraph of the press release. Michael is on his amplifier. I got to turn this down so you can see this. And Michael begins to slump in his seat. And I read the second paragraph. And he slumps further in his seat. And the third paragraph. And when I finally get to the end, Michael says, that's beautiful. Did you write that? Nobody. Daniel, nobody ever saw the depth of the aesthetic, whatever you call it, process Mm. that went into one of my press releases the way that Michael saw it and then we went downstairs for a meeting with um the art director from cbs who was supposed to be coming over with the portfolios of some of the leading illustrators in the country to see which one we should pick for the album cover the victory tour album cover and um we're standing there at the table the brothers michael is at my right shoulder um, his elbow is at my right elbow, his knee is at my right knee, and we're being squashed together by the brothers on either side of us. And the art director of CBS has these gorgeous hand-tooled leather and hand-tooled cherry wood portfolios. And I recognize these guys because they are the legends of the industry that I was in for three years with my commercial art studio, um, my periscope position into the dark underbelly where new myths and movements are made what's in and, the portfolios um what's that what do they what do they have in the portfolios portfolios have the pictures original pictures mm. from these illustrators uh designed to win business right um by showing what the artist can do and i mean the summation of your career is in your portfolio if you're an artist and they shoved the first uh portfolio across the table. Now, one thing to know, when I was 10, what got me into science, a book appeared on my lap, a book I'd never seen. Now, you know how you know the, the location of every book in the house, because it was there when you were born and it has, it's never moved. Mm. Um, and But this book had no place in my house. I don't know where it came from. And it said the first two rules of science are these, the truth at any price, including the price of your life. And it gave the example of Galileo and told the tale all wrong that he was willing to go to the stake to defend his truth, which was not true. 
but I needed the mythic version. Mm. Um, and the second rule of science, look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before and then proceed from there. Look for things that you and everybody around you take for granted and thus are invisible to you and bring them into the realm of visibility. And it gave the example of Anton von Leeuwenhoek, the man who invented the microscope, looked at a, pond, a drop of pond water and discovered it was filled with, in, with animalcules that no human had ever seen before, even though we had spent 200,000 years evolving along with them. They'd been there all the time. Um, so those, those are my religions. That's it. Those are my body and my blood. Mm. And um, so Michael is standing next to me. The first portfolio is slid across the green of the uh, billiard table. Michael opens it one inch, just one inch. And his knees begin to buckle again. And he goes, ooh, ooh. And you could see that Michael was seeing the infinite this is what William Blake talked about, um, mm. seeing a world in a grain of sand, seeing the infinite and the tiniest of things. I had never been standing next to somebody who was seeing the infinite and the tiniest of things before in my life. I had never been next to a living instantiation, incarnation of the second law of science. Look at things right under your noses if you've never seen them before. And the further Michael got into the page, the more you could see he was seeing infinities in that work that even the artist mm. had never seen. It was a stunning experience. Here was, here was an individual who incarnated the first two rules of science in ways I had never anticipated or believed a human could. I thought we were all on the same plane. I mean, when, when it came right down to it, Prince was a normal person like you and me. Now, there are mm. a lot of things that made him very, very different from normal. But when it came to the level of his aesthetic experience, it came nowhere near what I was feeling through my elbow and my shoulder and my knee with Michael's body language response. He was having an aesthetic orgasm. And this ability to operate on a higher level than I ever thought a human could operate on, all in consonance with the truth at any price, including the price of your life, and look at things right under your nose, as if you'd never seen them before, was something I never imagined could exist, despite having worked with a vast variety of some of the most talented people on the planet. So working with Michael was, uh, in my book, Einstein, Michael Jackson, and Me, I compared it to 1955. In 1955, we were all told that no human, by sports physiologists, no less, that no human being could ever beat the four minute mile. It just wasn't physiologically mm -hmm. possible. And Roger Bannister, who was a med student in England, and one of his friends was another med student in England, um, started analyzing Roger Bannister's run. To take, to, they looked for every little way in which Roger Bannister could be wasting energy. And they managed to train him out of all those little idiosyncrasies. And the result was that Roger Bannister broke the impossible. He broke the four-minute mile. And the result of that was that every modern internationally competitive runner breaks the four-minute mile. 1,800 people have broken the four-minute mile since then. Well, what Roger Bannister did for the four-minute mile, Michael Jackson did for awe, wonder, surprise, and commitment to the truth, which in his case 
was commitment to his audience. Um, and if only people can see what he was, because if they can't, it's all going to disappear. Mm. That astonishing role model. Um, so I do my best and I sign Michael Jackson and me to get across to you who Michael really was. So let me try to put this in my words so I make sure I understand it. Was it that he had a heightened sensitivity to his sensory experience and was able to see wonder and value in the mundane in a way that you had never encountered before? Got it. That's it. And that served as a, I imagine something incredibly inspirational to you. And when you're around people yes. like that, it kind of shifts your perception as well. Right. It was probably the most important human connection I've ever had mm. because it expanded my sense of what humans can be. And I, what am I doing in my work? I'm trying to expand what humans could be, but, but nowhere near as concretely as Michael manifested it in his daily life. It was just him all wonder and surprise. So he was committed to giving that quality of all wonder and surprise to his kids. Um, and how do I know about Michael's kids and his relationship to them? One day, I used to keep a little red violin, uh, little red nylon knapsack mm -hmm. behind my desk. And it had a spare shirt and a razor and the first laptop computer, uh, Radio Shack, TRS-100. And it was there because I would get calls saying, you've got to be out here someplace today. You're the only one who could solve this problem. So I got a call at four o'clock in the afternoon saying, you've got to be out here, meaning L.A., by 11 o'clock tonight. Um, Michael is canceling his tour and you're the only one he'll listen to. Now, mm -hmm. imagine being told that. Wow. I, I didn't register the importance of that phrase. You're the only one he will listen to until his fans started agglomerating um, and making contact with me. And then his fans were the ones who pointed out that, yes, you were the only person he trusted. Um, that in itself is remarkable, but I why, didn't. Why do you think you that know, was the case? I understood who the fuck he was. You saw him. My whole life has been dedicated to not just understanding people through the tools of my science, but to understanding them through my empathic centers. Herman Hess, the novelist, says that there are a thousand personalities buried in a dark closet of the self, buried in the darkness. And so my job to find your soul, my job was to spend a, to, to study you like mad for six weeks, hmm. then to spend a full day with you in your environment with nobody around but you and me. And the goal soul spelunking to look for your soul. And one of the primary tools for looking for your soul was to find the corresponding self inside of my empathic center. Mm. So that once we left at the end of a day, I was tuned to you. I carried you around inside me. I carried Prince around inside me for decades. I carried Michael around inside me for decades. How often does someone come along who is dedicated to that depth of tuning himself to your frequency Plus, it turned out that Michael's frequency was my frequency mm. to begin with, was everything I believed in. So, um, so, oh, I was telling you the story. So, okay. So I, I, I told my uh, uh, assistant 
to get me a flight to LA immediately um, and get me a car. And I put on the little red knapsack and I ran down the stairs and jumped into the car and was in LA by 11 o'clock that night in a rental car following instructions on where I was supposed to go. And, and my destination turned out to be eerie as all hell. It was a movie studio in the middle of the night at 11 o'clock at night. And a movie studio has these great big aircraft hangar-like um, structures. And the roofs are semi-transparent. They're translucent to let in the light. At least that was my impression because um, I could see I, I could see how dark these buildings were. The darkness like it, 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 it stole the warmth of your heart. It froze you. And I went to the building that I'd been told, not the finding it was easy, and walked in. And it was a huge studio with hundreds of seats and a stage 110 feet long. Now, to give you a sense of proportion, when uh, I was named the ambassador of Texas culture to the world by the mayor of Houston, and we did a tour called ZZ Top, and I did a tour called Taking Texas to the World. And we had this enormous stage, and it was shaped in the shape of the state of Texas and was tilted at an angle. So you could see it no matter where you were in the audience. So you could see it was shaped in the state of, uh, in, in the shape of the state of Texas. And um, that stage was 70, that gigantic stage was 75 feet wide. The Jackson stage was 110 feet wide, 40% bigger than the biggest stage I'd ever bought out on tour with. Mm -hmm. And the Jacksons were doing their rehearsal. So I sat in a seat and waited till they finished their rehearsal. Then we all filed out to a dressing trailer. Have you ever seen a dressing trailer or been in one? No. It's this big, big, long van. Um, but it's it's been redone. The interior has been redone. So it's a dressing room. And in this case, it had uh, across from the the door, the door um, was a banquette of red uh, vinyl seat, just bench, padded bench. And next to the door, there was a little tiny padded bench. And the padded bench was clearly the power, the, the bench next to the door was clearly the power position. Mm. So Michael took that seat. The brothers took the bench opposite me. And I sat once again at Michael's left hand. And Michael explained to me um, why he was postponing the tour, but with an indefinite date. Mm. It was because he explained that he owes his kids the quality of awe, wonder, and surprise that he gets every day. So he wanted this tour to be a surprise. So a year earlier, he had gone out and found the best people, the best stage builders, the best sound system builders, the best lighting people, and even the best magicians. And he had signed them all to an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. They would not reveal that they were working on Michael's tour mm. at all. And um, and when he was talking about, uh, um, and, and he said, look, my brother Jackie has had a bone chip in his knee. I knew that because I'd flown out to LA to do, to the press conference at the hospital about the bone chip with the doctors. And um, and they were he was supposed to be healed by now. He's not healed. 
My brother Jackie is the best dancer I have ever seen in my life and the best choreographer. Now, think about this. Michael Jackson was the ultimate student of dance. He studied, studied everyone from James Brown to Fred Astaire in detail, in mm. depth. And if he says his brother Jackie is the best dancer he has ever seen, that is a major statement. So I owe my audience the best. And I cannot go out there and give them the best. I can't all wonder and surprise them if my brother Jackie can't be on stage. Mm. Um, it all made perfect sense, except I pointed out to him that because of the NDA agreements, the press had been leaked a series of negative stories about the Jackson tour. And the press had been told um, that the Jacksons were trying to conclude um, predatory contracts with the promoters of the tour, that the reason their tickets were $30 instead of $11, like everybody else, was because they were trying to suck the blood of the audience before the Michael Jackson phenomena disappeared and Marlon Jackson would not be able to afford his seven or eight video arcade games anymore. And they were even leaked a sample contract mm -hmm. with the promoters to prove all of this. And so that's what the press had started to write. And then Dave Marsh, one of the most influential of the press people, started writing that nobody we know has been hired to do the stage, so the stage is going to collapse. Nobody we know has been hired to do the sound system, so the sound system is going to electrocute the performers. Wow. Nobody we know has been hired to do the lighting, so there's four and five-story high lighting, scaf light, lighting scaffolds um, are going to collapse on the heads of the audience. And nobody that we know has been hired to do the security. So gangs are going to be running amok at an event to which you have taken your children. Um, and that, because Dave Marsh is a lead sheep, all of those in the press follow him. Everybody apes his arguments. So that's what had been said about the tour. And I said, Michael, if you postpone this, you will be feeding these rumors of unprofessionalism that people like Dave Marsh have been spreading very successfully. And you will kill the credibility of your tour. And parents will not dare bring their children to see you. You have to stick with the tour date. Well, this is like two prophets going against each other. When I don't know if this happens to you, but sometimes the voice that takes you over is not your own daily voice. It comes from somewhere else. Yes, it is speaking a deep truth that you know down to the very gut of you. So when I, Michael was describing what he owed his audience, I had something I don't think I've ever had before or since, a visual vision. I have, I've had visions I've known, for example, when I saw Elon Musk for the first time in 2005, and he had not even put a firecracker in a tin can and launched it. He hadn't launched anything. And NASA said he would never get anything off the ground. Um, I knew I had met uh, a figure of monumental mythic proportions and the kids would be following his example 110 years from then, which means roughly 100 years or 95 years from now. Um, so that kind of vision I had had. I had the same thing with Shaka Khan and a number of others. But this was different. I saw Michael's ribs as golden gates. Oh. And I saw those golden gates open. And I saw 10,000 kids inside, in the sunshine, 
with a clear blue sky. Um, those were Michael's kids. So this was like um, two Moses parting the Red Seas. But we weren't going against each other, Daniel. We both deeply believed, ultimately, in Michael's best interests and the best interests of his audience. Mm -hmm. That's why the voice that came for me was a voice of truth that I had no control over. And Michael was speaking his truth. And ultimately, Michael did not cancel the tour. So that was the strength of, if you ask the question, why were you the only person that Michael trusted? I believe that we resonated on an empathic level. Mm. I believe that we actually knew who each other were. Look at what Michael did when he was slumping paragraph by paragraph as I read him a mere press release. To him, it wasn't a mere press release. It was a work of art. And one other thing I wanted to get to, back to when I was 16 years old and they let me into this private school. Well, it turned out to be all the kids who had excluded me when I was younger. Um, and, and the school was brilliantly set up in those days so that you had um, popularity positions. Uh, you could vote for class president, the most popular kid in the class, class vice president, the second most popular kid, class secretary, the most popular girl, and class treasurer, the most popular Jew. Well, I wasn't going to get any of those positions because I was not I was not even on the social map. Um, you couldn't even call me unpopular. Um, I was so unpopular. Yet they also had functional positions, committees that had to get things done. And one of them was called the programming committee. And the school had a 45 minute assembly every day before you went to class. And as head of the programming committee, I was voted the head of my junior year. Um, my job was to emcee all five of those assemblies and to program two of them a week. Well, one day the juniors came to me and they made, they said, look, we're having a dance. Could you advertise it for us? They didn't understand how deeply ironic that request was. If there was a dance anywhere in Buffalo, New York, I was cordially invited to stay as far away as possible, preferably Cleveland or Albuquerque. And um, yet they were, I mean, it, this really was an emotional clash for me, but I agreed to do it. So I put a piece of music on the turntable with no idea of what I was going to do. And I cannot dance. Every two years, my parents would try something to make me normal. One year it was sending me to dance classes for a full year. And still at the end of the year, I couldn't do a box step. Um, and, and no girl would dance with me. Um, only the instructors would dance with me and they learned to regret it because of the number of toes I mashed. Um, so I can't dance. And I went out into the middle of the stage to dance. Are you kidding me? And I saw what I was describing to you. I saw the pupils of the audience fixate on me. I saw after my first few moves how their pupils dilated. I saw their faces melt. I saw them congealing in one big amoebic structure of what I can only call human soul. Um, and I saw it reach out to me and come through me. And I had an out-of-body experience. I was watching all of this from the ceiling. So I saw that amoebic force reach up through the empty tube of my body, reach up to somewhere around here, around my head, be utterly transmogrified, transmogrified and go back down again and flow back through the audience and saw their pupils dilate even further and their mouths begin to hang. 
their jaws begin to drop. And then when it was all over, and remember, this is the ecstatic experience, mm-hmm. being, being not even being in my own body. Um, and then they did something that they did something that looked as if they had practiced it all their lives, but they had never done it before at my time in the school and would never do it again. They surged down to the foot of the stage, 350 kids who hated me. And they picked me up off their proscenium and they put me on their shoulders and they carried me out of the building and up the stairs to the building where we had our classes. And only then did they let me down. So I had experienced the kind of soul I was looking for, but it took me 30 years to paste that into this larger narrative and see that it fit. that I'd already experienced this. One of the reasons I could relate to my performers was I had been through their primary performance experience, an experience they could not express to anybody else, and they didn't have to express it to me because I already came with that knowledge built in. So, But that experience of being taken out of yourself and being taken over by something greater than what you are, something that includes the entire audience, whether it's 700 people or 700,000 people. Um, That, what was I going to tell you about that experience? But that is what, it's what Adolf Hitler used Mm -hmm. to fuse the German people together into Ein Reich, yeah, Ein Reich, Ein Volk, uh, Ein Führer, into a higher one. Yeah. And and it's what ultimately it's what Winston Churchill had to do less dramatically in the West to save the West from Adolf Hitler. You know that Churchill had a completing to FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, time after time after time after time. And he had to uplift an audience. Mm-hmm. And we when he gave his speech, um, We will fight them in the trenches. We will fight them in the fields. We will fight them on the beaches. We will fight them everywhere. And we will never give up, never give up, never give up. He had just enunciated an anthem for his generation. And anthems are remarkably important. And they come from musicians most of the time. Right. An anthem is something that lifts you out of yourself and brings you in contact with that group soul with that higher something that we can come become a part of in a crowd um, under the right circumstances. So my the subtitle of my first book, The Lucifer Principle, is a scientific expedition into the forces of history. And that turns out to be exactly what I was doing with my 20 years of what's called participant observer science in mass culture and mass behavior. When you're running the PR firm. Yeah, running the PR firm. And then since then, working with Buzz Aldrin, um, working with the 11th president of India, who was the the major political superstar of South Asia for four years um, until his death. Um, And this has been a life of remarkable experiences, but I've been on a quest since I was 12. And it was for that thing called soul. Yeah, so I, I wanted to draw some elements together that I observed in your the story of your childhood and how they kind of come together in all the different things that you've done. So one was this ecstatic experience that you had when you were dancing 
I can imagine that was probably an inflection point, whether you understood it or not, that put you on this trajectory to explore this in all the different ways that you have, like in music. Certainly helped. The other is was- uh, when that when that girl looked at you and said that you knew the theory of relativity, and then you learned from Einstein that you need to you need to explain geniuses the ability to explain things um not just understand them and then that trained you to be an exceptional writer and then the third thing is it sounds implicit implicit in your story it sounds like you were an outsider when you were a kid absolutely and being an outsider it puts you in this you know as difficult as that may be it also is a privileged position because yes now absolutely you can have you experienced that in different ways yeah yeah, yeah, I can relate to it. It is an amazing privilege. It's painful as all hell. Yeah. It's a torture, but it is an astonishing privilege. So, if we combine those three elements, I can understand why you were really well positioned, say, to to vibe with Michael Jackson and also to work in understanding the souls of these musicians and how to bring that soul to others because you had experienced the ecstatic experience. You had trained your ability to communicate by working on your writing from a very young age. So you can, some people experience these things, but they can't put them into words. And you had the ability to do both. And then you had this observation capacity that you had to learn from a young age from being an outsider. And that probably honed your empathic capacities in a way that someone who just felt normal probably wouldn't have had to train. So I wonder if that resonates with you because I noticed that. Absolutely. I think you've got it so much on the nose that it's ridiculous and what you're making me realize is Einstein was talking about being able to communicate something incommunicable in science. Uh, What amounted to 500 pages of equations and being able to summarize that in English or in German in his case, Mm -hmm. but one way or the other into clear, understandable language. And um, the ineluctable thing that I had to learn to explain was not 700 pages of equations. The intellectual thing that I had to learn to explain is this ecstatic experience that I call soul. Uh, And that's as hard as explaining the theory of relativity. So maybe this could be the, the topic that we close on. I'm curious how you would explain or for, for the listeners, how, how would you explain the ecstatic experience to someone who maybe hasn't experienced it? And then as a follow-up, how can somebody experience more of it in their life? Like, it seems like a very important aspect of the human experience. Wouldn't it be good if more people had a taste of it? It would. And, but the thing that I would advise, very few of us have access to audiences. Mm. Um, but we all have access to a dance club somewhere. And in the strobes and the whole way the evening is set up in a dance club is to set your normal self aside and bring a bonfire of the hidden selves inside of you to the surface. And normally what happens is people experience this being out of and above themselves in, in sheer, a sheer passion they can't control and don't understand. Most people come out of that experience when the lights go off and the music stops playing and go back to being their normal selves. But that's not what's going to get you the most in life. Hmm. What's going to get you the most in life is coming out of that experience and trying vividly to remember it. And then 
trying to articulate it so you can use it. That is a you hidden inside of you. Yes, it is a higher collective self, but it is simultaneously one of the deepest yous. And presumably, if you can capture that, not just let it drift away as if it didn't exist, um, it will prove of use somehow in your normal life. Because what are you doing? We're all part of a capitalist society. I have a book, The Genius of the Beast, A Radical Revision of Capitalism. What does it say? The ultimate mandate of capitalism is be messianic. Mm. Save, lift, upgrade, and empower your neighbors. Save, lift, and upgrade 100 neighbors, and you get $100. 100,000 neighbors, and you get $100,000. Um, even if you're putting out a pop song like Joan Jett's I Love Rock and Roll, there are studies that demonstrate, beeper studies from a long time ago when beepers were common, that uh, that show that the normal human adult goes through seven mass mood swings a day, which means that a normal human being, you or me, goes through, goes from heaven to hell and back again seven times a day. How does that relate to making Joan Jett's I Love Rock and Roll a hit, which I was an instrumental part of? Um because for the time you are listening to that song, you are being lifted out of a hell. That's three and a half minutes of secular salvation. Mm. And that is the job of capitalism. If you are behind the counter of a McDonald's and a person comes and orders a Big Mac, you can do two things. You can regard yourself as being exploited by the McDonald's corporation, and you can frown at that person. Or you can recognize this is a human being like you. And if you smile at that person, it will put a smile in his or her day, and she will probably smile back at you, which will put a smile back in your day. And when you go home at night, if you've spent the day with this attitude of I am being exploited, you will go home bitter. But if you go home at night and you have tried to cheer people up, cheering up yourself in order to do it, and then you've kept all those smiles because they do accumulate in you. Um, you will go home feeling fulfilled. So the choice of whether to live in bitterness or live in fulfillment is yours. Um, because capitalism is all about the exchange, not just of goods and services, but souls, ironically, especially in the case of rock and roll music. So I really like how you said um, you know, you have that mountaintop experience at the dance club, the collective effervescence, the ecstatic experience. And your job then is to remember it and integrate it with the rest of your life. Yes. I'm, I'm trying to think, what does that look like? How, how do I take that experience from the Friday night and integrate it on the Monday? Or even after this podcast, I'm going to go see my friends. How do I show up in a way that is uh, more ecstatic and, and messianic? What sort of thoughts? And I, I don't, I don't really know, but if you keep it there, look what's happened to me. Mm. Um, I started imagining this experience at the age of 12. Um, I experienced it at the age of 16 and I applied it. I've applied it in everything I do. Why did grad school look like Auschwitz for the mind to me? Mm -hmm, um, mm. because it wouldn't let me anywhere near the sacred flame. And when I say sacred, I mean that divinity is not something that exists in the sky. Divinity is something that exists as an experience, exactly, inside of all of us. And our job 
is to bring that divinity to life if we possibly can and to share it with others, which is what Michael felt was his entire mission in life. So what is that like for you? Like, how do you get closer to that sacred flame? How do you find it? Like, is it, is it like a, is there a qualitative experience where you feel like, okay, I'm moving closer to it or further away? Not really. What happens, I think, because you're making me think about these things in ways I haven't thought about them. You'll find it in all of my work. Mm -hmm. Um, You'll find it in my, uh, in, in my obsession with group behavior. Um, you'll find it in my story of how the cosmos begins. The cosmos begins as a social experience, giving birth to higher selves, like that higher self of which you feel you are a part when you have the ecstatic experience. What do I mean? The universe in the first micro flick, the first 10 to the minus 30 seconds of a second of the cosmos existence. First, there is a spreading sheet of space, time, and speed. And then popping from that sheet of space, time, and speed, um, the way that raindrops precipitate from a cloud come the very first things. And they are quarks. And quarks are astonishingly social. They cannot live without sociality. They cannot live in isolation. So quarks gang up in groups of two or groups of three. And then a strange thing happens. An emergent property higher than the quarks comes into existence. The equivalent of what you are sensing when you feel you are a part of something bigger than yourself in the middle Mm -hmm. of an ecstatic experience. That something that would be bigger than yourself really does exist. It's real. For the quarks, it's three up quarks and a down quark. I've always got this wrong. Uh, Become a proton and three up quarks and a down quark become a neutron. A neutron, according to Aristotle, to understand something, break it down to its smallest parts and learn their laws, break it down to what he calls the elements, and then learn their laws, elementary laws. Well, you can understand everything you need to about a quark, and you can never get the slightest hint of what a neutron or a proton will be. It's something utterly surprising. It's what I call a supersized surprise. Um, And um, so we humans are constantly giving birth. or participating in these larger holes, the way the three quarks are participating in neutronness and protonness. Um, and that that's probably about as far as I can go, because this, you know, I in my current book, the one I'm finishing, is um, the case of the sexual cosmos. Everything you know about uh, nature is wrong. Um, and it's a very different portrayal of nature. And then the next one, because I'm, I'm going to be 80 in two months or something like that. Mm. Um, the next one has got to be uh, the grand unified theory of everything in the universe, including sex violence and the human soul, which is really what I've been working on since I was 12. Very modest. Remember that speech I gave to the poor innocent headmaster? You will reverse the order of your science courses in mm. order to tell me the story of the universe and how we fit into it. That's what I've been doing um, ever since. 68 years or something like that, if my math is at all correct. Um, So my sense of the ecstatic has been there in everything that I've done. Mm -hmm. And your sense of the ecstatic, if you choose to carry it with you, because it is a power that exists within you, um, the divinity inside of you, the experience of divinity inside of you, um, that will color your decisions. I don't know how. 
I can't predict how, but it will color your decisions. And the way that it made Michael a tool, an instrument of his 100,000 kids, the 10,000 kids inside of his chest, um, it will make you an instrument of others to a certain extent. And capitalism is all about being an instrument of others to the extent that you are a successful instrument of others, especially in uplifting, empowering, and upgrading them, um, you make a living. Yeah, so um, I'll just put this piece in. Uh, we didn't get into this today, but you also have an important element of your story where you had chronic fatigue syndrome and you were bedridden for 15 years. For 15 years, yes. And I was too weak to speak and too weak to have another person in the room with me for five years. And I, and I wrote three books and I founded two international scientific groups while I was flat on the bed. So I, I bring that in for the listeners because uh, obviously your, your story is, is really wild. But again, there's this theme where you're, you're turning 80 in two months and you have more conspicuous vitality than many 30-year-olds I know. And you went through this terrible illness and still maintain your energy and were able to ultimately pull yourself out of it. So at least uh, as a sample size of one, there's something to this disposition that you've been holding since you were a kid of looking for the ecstatic and bringing that into everything that you do in your life. So um, as a final question, is there anything you'd like to leave the listeners with um, about this disposition or anything at all? Actually, there is. If you give me a second, I want to bring it up here in the computer. Um, let's just go anywhere and let's find the file of epigrams because this sums up, it sums this whole thing up better than I will probably ever be able to do again in my life. And it's this little epigram. And it's now a piece of music by a group called Airship Caravan, which you can find on YouTube. Okay, here it is. Since there is no God, it is our job to do his work. God is not a being. He is an aspiration, a gift, a vision, a goal to seek. Ours is the responsibility of making a cruel universe turn just, of turning pains to understandings and new insights into joy, of creating ways to soar the skies for generations yet to come, of fashioning wings with which our children's children shall overcome, of making worlds of fantasy materialize as reality, of mining and transforming our greatest gifts, our passions, our imaginings, our pains, our insecurities. Um, wait, where does it go here? And our lusts. This is the work of deity, and deity is a power that resides in us. So that's the grand summation. Beautiful. Howard, thank you so much for this conversation. Well, thank you, Daniel. You've actually uh, given me a, a major new insight. I'm very happy to be part of that. Okay, have a great night. Hopefully we'll talk again soon. <laughs> <laughs>